They say the experience of time slows down as you approach the speed of light. But I know another thing that alters your sense of time. Pandemics. I mean, how is it that it is already Palm Sunday? In less than a week, we're going to be walking through the story of Jesus's arrest and crucifixion on Good Friday. And then this time next week, we'll be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, his complete transformation from one phase of being to another. During the season of Lent, we've been exploring the idea that through the power of Jesus, we too can be transformed. Yes, of course, through faith in Jesus, there's this type of transformation where we'll have resurrected bodies one day and, and totally renewed hearts. But there's also some healing available to us now. Healing of emotional wounds and shame and habits of sin that lead to death. Just before Lent, we were able to hand out a book to each household in the church titled The Lazarus Life, Spiritual Transformation for Ordinary People, written by Stephen Smith. And I've been preaching through sermons based on the story of Lazarus in John 11 and outlined by the topics in the Lazarus Life book. So to make it simpler, for those of you who are reading along in the book with the sermon series, uh, I've just been titling my sermons after the book chapter that I'm covering. So last week, we focused on the part of the story where Lazarus has come back to life because of the powerful call of Jesus on him. And yet, he's still coming out of the tomb in his grave clothes. He's still held back and tripped up and weighed down by the remnants of his former self in the grave. And we talked about how through the grace of Jesus and with the support of the loving Christian community around us, we can begin to remove those grave clothes of sin and shame. We can remove the things that belong to the tomb, but not to the life in the light of Jesus. Today, our focus is on what it might look like to live life in the light of new life. Not quite resurrection life, but a new life in Jesus in the present. As we get started, I have two caveats that I want to name up front. First, these examples of living in the light of Jesus are from one small narrative account. It's the account of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It is not intended to be exhaustive. I just thought that since we've been in this story for, what, 10 weeks now, that we might as well follow up with it and see what happens to these characters, to these lives, after they witness Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. Second, I want to reiterate that transformation is a process. It's sort of this dance of two steps forward, one step back, and it can be frustrating and it can be hard. So when we look at these examples in scripture, do not hear me saying that after Lazarus was brought back to life, he and his family were forever transformed. I and mean, that is clearly not what's going on and it's not what I'm saying. It's not a magic secret sauce. It's a process. So what we're going to do is work through John 12, 1 through 19, the very text that was read just a few moments ago in our scripture reading. And I'm going to point out some observations. And in particular, I'll be pointing out four ways that living in the light of Jesus changes us. So first, let me just give a little backstory before we dive right in. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the grave. He's commanded the crowds to unbind Lazarus and to help remove the grave clothes. And then two things happen in the text. This is the end of, of John chapter 11. Some people believe in Jesus. That is, in the Greek wording, they put their, their trust into Jesus. 
The other thing that happened is that some other people left Jesus and reported what he had done to the Pharisees and to the chief priests. Now, these Pharisees and chief priests were threatened by Jesus and his influence on the people, and so they plot to kill Jesus at the next available opportunity. Jesus knows that he's going to give his life over, he's going to hand it over to the authorities, but he's going to do it the Father's way and in the Father's timing. And so Jesus goes into hiding. We don't know exactly how long he's in hiding, uh, but he's avoiding his usual hangouts. We do know that when he re-enters the world of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, it's a big deal because he knows that if he gets caught, he's going to be condemned, and he knows that if he shows up in public, like, you know, like at the Passover in Jerusalem, he knows there's going to be problems. So with six days before the Passover, Jesus comes into Bethany, and he stays with his good friends Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Now in the story we read about Jesus, he's only got six days left until his arrest. Six days to to make the most of his life, to maybe get some final teaching in, or to do another teaching circuit, or to do some more miracles. I, he's only got six days left. He knows this. Now, what are he and his friends doing in this story? They simply share a meal together. And this leads us to our first point. When we live in the light of Jesus, we begin seeing the sacred in the ordinary. We begin seeing the sacred in the ordinary. Now, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Think if that happened today. If some guy that you knew was dead, and then somebody prayed for him, let's say, in Jesus' name, and he raises up after four days, like he's in one of those coolers in the, in the mortuary or something like that, and he comes alive again. Think if that happened today. What would, what would take place? Well, people would be coming out of the cracks of the sidewalk to sign him to a book deal, to a spot on Oprah, to an HBO miniseries, or worse yet, maybe one of those Vid Angels video series or some kind of Christian publishing thing. It would be horrible, wouldn't it? The church would put Lazarus on a speaking tour around the world, and he could tell his story, and all these giant crowds of people would rah, rah for Jesus. The tools of social media and cable TV may not have existed in the first century, but don't be fooled into thinking that it was just this quaint existence free of vain glory and hype. People with significant stories to tell would often travel a circuit in the Roman Empire to speak to vast audiences. Hype was a thing in the first century. But we don't hear anything like that with Lazarus. I mean, what was he doing? He was reclining at the table. He was hosting his friends and savior. No fanfare, just a small, intimate group of people. Lazarus has already lost his family once in the story. And now that he has this new life, he seems to have learned that maybe the holiest thing he can do is to be present and, and invested in his loved ones and his community. Lazarus was with his family, not out trying to make a name for himself. And Lazarus was present with his Savior. He's not out trying to score points for Jesus. And Lazarus doesn't sign a book deal. And the church doesn't lift him up as a hero and parade him around to different places. Sometimes we get too caught up in the false divide between the ordinary life and the spiritual life. Like, it's ordinary to have a friendship. But it's a spiritual friendship if you include a Bible study once a week. Or it's ordinary to have a job, 
but your job is super spiritual if you work at a church or some Christian ministry, and et cetera, et cetera, so the logic goes, and flawed logic at that. Because what I've been trying to communicate and what I think the scriptures communicate is that it is holy and spiritual and very much a kingdom of God endeavor to live your whole life, including the ordinary parts, just the regular stuff of life, as if it is all unto the Lord, as all an act of worship. I mean, I'm sure that Lazarus had a job. I mean, he had to support himself and two unmarried sisters. And we know that Jesus had a job. I mean, we heard about him being a carpenter, but he also was an itinerant preacher and a healer and God of the universe. I mean, he had stuff going on. But there doesn't seem to be a distinction between regular life and holy life. One of the marks of a person living in the light of Jesus is that they begin to see a unity in things. Distinctions between holy and ordinary, sacred and secular, spiritual life and physical life, these distinctions begin to get blurry and to break down and to, and to dissolve away. So playing dress up or riding bikes with your kids or grandkids can be just as holy as reading scripture. Cleaning your house can be just as important as cleaning the church kitchen or participating in a Bible study. The person who is being transformed in Christ knows that they need a mixture of activities. Work and play, family time and friendship time, church involvement and friends from school or work or neighborhood or whatever. It is healthy and holy to live an integrated life. The second way living in the light of Jesus changes us is that we find freedom from being judgmental. Freedom from being judgmental. When we're entombed in our sin and shame and insecurity, we are tempted to be hypercritical of other people. We seek uniformity because we believe the lie that if people think like I think, then I must be thinking about things in the right way. So let's say you're a free spirit. You can easily judge those around you who are more formal or more routine oriented. Or if you're a person who's found your coping mechanism with life as a controlling all the variables in your life, then you'll naturally look down on people who appear to live sloppy lives or do things that you consider irresponsible. In a different story about Mary and Martha, we read where Jesus comes to dinner and he's teaching in their house. And in that story, Lazarus isn't even mentioned. I mean, maybe he's too busy working, or maybe he's out with his friends, or he's just checked out altogether. None of the death and, and resuscitation stuff had even happened yet. This is before that story. Anyway, Martha's busy making sure the house is in order, and she's serving her dinner guests and busting her tail to be the hostess with the mostess. And when she sees Mary just sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach with all the men, she gets offended. See, in her mind, the way you, that you show you care, the way of gaining the respect of others was to serve. And she's so wrapped up in her own feelings and her own perspective that she ends up complaining to Jesus, Master, don't you care that my sisters left me to do all the work? Tell her to help me. Sounds like some conversations in our house sometimes. See, in that passage, Luke 10, 38, if you're wondering, the narrator tells us that Martha was distracted from Jesus because of her hurried preparations. In that story, Jesus says to Mary that she's chosen the good part, 
But I don't think he means that it is better to sit and listen than it is to serve. What I, I think he's saying that it's better than being distracted. It's better than being so caught up in what you think brings you value that you project that onto other people. If we're being honest, I think deep down the reason we're so judgmental sometimes is because we're hard on ourselves. See, when we're living with one leg in the tomb and the grave clothes draped around us, it's hard to see that Jesus actually loves us for who we are. That he loves us in our uniqueness. That he loves others in their uniqueness too. And because we can't accept that we are loved, we'll make ourselves feel better by bringing everyone else down around us. But notice what happens in this story in John chapter 12. Lazarus is very much part of the story. He's not absent. He's far from absent. He's reclining at the table with Jesus. There's nowhere else he's going to be. He's not too busy anymore. Mary is again at the feet of Jesus, this time anointing them. And Mary, I'm sorry, Martha is serving. There's no complaining. There's no comparing. See, when we're living in the light of Jesus, we respect that people are different and that the differences can be beautiful and equally glorious. So Mary is going to do Mary. She's going to be with Jesus in a deeply intimate way. That's who she is. And Martha is going to Martha. She's going to love others through service, but not in a distracted way. When she's living in the light of Jesus, she's serving in a way that is equally holy and devotional to what Mary is doing at Jesus' feet. And nobody needs to bug each other or to judge them. Third, living in the light of Jesus leads to love and devotion for the real Jesus. Love and devotion for the real Jesus. That is who he actually is. And here's what I mean. Lazarus and Mary and Martha were already with Jesus, already his friends, well before Lazarus died and was raised. But when they went through the crisis of Lazarus's death, their, their worlds were shaken. They thought they had loved Jesus, but they had loved their idea of Jesus. They had loved the idea that Jesus was never going to let anything bad happen to them or their family. And they loved the idea that Jesus, as a personal friend, would treat them differently than other people. Surely he would come and immediately answer their prayers. Surely he would make everything okay as they defined okay. But the death of Lazarus brought the death of these illusions to the sisters, uh, the, the illusions that they had about Jesus. Their pain and anger gave them perspective to see Jesus in a new light. Having their confidence shaken meant that they could no longer assume Jesus was their domesticated Messiah. As they witnessed Jesus' tears and his authority over death and calling Lazarus from the tomb, they came to see the real Jesus. They came to know that his love was deeper than they had imagined, but also that his plans were stranger than they could ever hope for. In John chapter 12, we see Mary anointing the feet of Jesus. And many people point to the fact that this is an anointing for, for burial, that she is now accepting what Jesus has been saying several times in John's gospel up to this point, that he's going to die. And it is the will of the Father. It is the, the plan that they have together. 
And Mary has stopped pretending that he's going to be what she wants. And she starts to trust that he will be what she needs. Now, this story is in stark contrast. Um, it contrasts Mary's devotion and the crowds, on the other hand. See, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the Passover, the crowds sense the moment. Hey, this is the great teacher, right? This is the one who raised a man from the grave, who does all these miracles and teaches like no one else has ever taught. Surely he was the one that, that they wanted to save them. This was who they were waiting for, the savior of Israel over the Roman oppression. And so as he's coming into Jerusalem, they wave palm branches. And that custom, the waving of branches, is not even associated with Passover. It's actually closest uh, related to tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, which doesn't take place until September. But the waving of palms was even more famous um, from an event that happened just a few hundred years before Jesus. You see, Judas Maccabeus led a rebellion against Syria and won back freedom for Israel against an oppressive enemy. And for decades, the Maccabees ruled and protected Israel from foreign attack. One of their great leaders, Jonathan, was murdered by a foreign king in a great act of treachery. And the people of Israel were terrified. And the, the surrounding nations plotted to take over um, Israel again and to oppress the Jews. But Jonathan's little brother, Simon, encouraged the people and he fortified their cities and he led Israel to victory. And Simon reconsecrated the temple and he ruled in peace. Simon was a powerful military leader, and he was able to crush his enemies with might. And do you know how the people of Jerusalem welcomed him into the city after his victory? Waving of palm branches. So in our story, the people seem to want Jesus to be that type of savior who would reestablish Israel as a thriving, independent nation at the expense of other nations. And they wanted Jesus to be a king like the Maccabees. And they were placing their nationalist hopes on top of Jesus, trying to make him their Ark of the Covenant, or their talisman, or their super soldier, their nuclear deterrent, their Israel first figurehead policy. When we mix our national hopes with our faith in Jesus, we corrupt both. There is only one king. There is only one eternal kingdom, and the person who is walking in the light of Jesus will be devoted to the king who rides on a donkey and takes the way of death rather than the limelight and the way of strength and worldly victory. Mary has come to love that Jesus. Have we? Fourth, and finally, living in the light of Jesus leads to trust in Jesus. Leads to trust in Jesus. You have to appreciate that in the ancient world, especially in Palestine and the Near East, unmarried women were extremely vulnerable. Strict social rules limited their ability to interact with most men who were not their relatives, and they had little ability to earn a living. And this meant that they were almost completely dependent upon the men in their family to care for them. Now, many scholars assume that Mary and Martha were both unmarried sisters, and that their father isn't mentioned in the story either. 
All this means that Lazarus, their brother, was their provider. And it all explains why they all lived together. It also explains their desperation when he becomes ill. Not that they didn't care for their brother because he was sick, but they also knew that if he died, they would be in serious trouble. They would have to live on whatever dowry their father or brother had set aside for them in the event that they were to ever get married. But after Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave, they come to trust Jesus for more than the things that are right in front of them. They seem to trust him for the whole of life. How can we tell? Because Mary is pouring out that Roman pound of pure nard, a fragrant and extremely expensive oil right onto Jesus's feet. In that act, she's likely pouring out her whole dowry onto Jesus's feet. She's pouring out the most valuable thing that she owns. It's her entire retire it's her entire retirement account. And in so doing, she's showing extravagant trust. Like the man who sold all that he had to buy the field with the treasure buried in it, so Mary has sold her worldly security to show her trust in Jesus for her all-encompassing eternal security. People like Judas, who were not walking in the light of Jesus, judge Mary. Judge her for her wastefulness, for her lack of worldly wisdom, for her fanaticism, for her impracticality. He says, that money could have been used to feed the poor. Really, he just wanted to steal it from the money box. See, Judas opposes Mary's extravagance. His grave clothes of greed bind him and blind him from seeing generously to seeing what true devotion and trust in Jesus really is. But as we're talking about this story right now, 2,000 years after the fact, we're still talking about the trust that Mary had. While Judas, who was shrewd and worldly, he's accursed in our memory. On this Palm Sunday, we remember how hard it is to put our trust in Jesus. He just doesn't do things the way that every other voice in the world tells us the way that things ought to be done. I mean, Jesus isn't a YouTube influencer, but at the same time, the Bible's the most copied book in the world. He's completely rejected by humanity, and yet he created all of us. He chose the path of downward mobility and humility and death, and yet he rose from the grave and now rules over everything at the Father's right hand. When I look at Jesus, I'm all too aware of the ways that I still don't trust him. I'm aware of how much better a man he is than I am about how much better he is at being a human. And I'm reminded of how far I have to go, how much redeeming I need. But you know what else I think of? I remember that my failure and your failure is exactly why he came. The mess we're in, the death we deserve, Jesus made himself human to rescue us and to make all things new. I may not yet have the type of trust to be completely transformed, but I trust that Jesus will continue what he started in me and what he started in you. Thanks be to God. He is faithful.